You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson, thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Um, as always, I'm recording here at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, and I'm hoping you're doing well um, this Thanksgiving. This should be dropping on Thanksgiving. And so uh, today, I'm really excited to actually um, talk about this book. Uh, first, before we begin, I want to thank Plow, uh, Plow Books, that's P-L-O-U-G-H, for those of you keeping score at home, uh, for their publication of this really wonderful series um, of what they're calling um, Backpack uh, Spiritual Guides. Um, There's a little kind of profiles of significant um, religious thinkers and theologians and with a collection of some of their writings. And they're really nice to send me some of these sometimes. And I'm really grateful for that. And I'm really enjoying reading each and every one of them. The current topic, uh, exactly the same thing. This this uh, new book is called The Inconvenient Gospel by Clarence, and it's about Clarence Jordan, and it's a collection of his writings. And I'm very lucky today to be joined by the editor of this book. Uh, his name is Dr. Frederick Downing, and he is a recently retired uh, professor of religion and philosophy at Valdosta State University. Frederick, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Danny. Thank you for having me. Gosh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. I really appreciated the book. Uh, Clarence Jordan, for those of you who may um, know the name, based on his establishing of the Koinonia Farm in Georgia, um, may not know the kind of depth of his religious and and theological thought. Um, And he's also a very important kind of early figure in the civil rights movement. And I I learned an incredible amount about him uh, through this book, and I really appreciate you putting it together. Um, You can tell us a little bit about yourself, Frederick, and first of all, and your interests and how they might have led you into an interest in uh, Clarence Jordan. Well, uh, thanks, Danny. I, I am a Southerner, very much like Clarence. Um, and so I grew up in the same culture and identified fairly early on uh, with uh, his wrestling match and his, his grappling with a way of truth and understanding in a religious setting. I came to Clarence fairly late. Uh, I, I was not really aware of him. Clarence was kind of a backwater figure in the South. Uh, he was um, uh, running against the culture, so to speak. And consequently, his name, his work was not promoted uh, out in the culture in many of the colleges and universities. So I was in seminary uh, in my early 20s before I really got to know much about him. And it was only when I first started teaching at a small school in Louisiana and met a young man who was teaching English, by the way. Mm. Um, We're not all that. <laughs> no. Uh, and he, uh, 
what his home in Georgia was 30 minutes from the little town of Talbotton where Clarence grew up. So he more than anybody else, Randy Loney was his name, uh, a graduate of the University of Georgia. He introduced me to, to uh, Clarence Jordan and his work and actually took me to Talbotton and um, it was through him that I, I learned a great deal about Clarence. Uh, but Clarence, like I say, was uh, in the backwater and is still there. Not, not a lot of folk know about Clarence Jordan to this day, uh, even though uh, one of his brainstorms, Habitat for Humanity, is known around the world. Clarence himself is not. Right, and uh, Jimmy Carter actually um, writes. Uh, you have there's a blurb from um, President Jimmy Carter, who's very involved with Habitat for Humanity. So you can sort of see a lineage um, between Clarence Jordan and Jimmy Carter's um, religious um, beliefs and, and theology. That's right. In, in fact, it's it's really striking that those two Georgians uh, lived within almost a stone's throw of one another. Yeah. Uh, Carter's hometown, just to the south of Koinonia, where where Clarence eventually came. Yeah, and the Koinonia farm is still in operation, um, and and it's still, as far as I know, <laughs> the last yeah. I knew, I actually no, it is yeah. a, a contact of mine from the uh, the Bruderhof group um, had gone to the Koinonia farm in the last couple of years, so I, I assume it's still in operation. Uh, and we can definitely talk about that and and what it sort of means and what it meant, particularly at the time um, that he established it. But the name of the collection is The Inconvenient Gospel, A Southern Prophet Tackles War, Wealth, Race, and Religion. And it is interesting, you talk about his kind of marginalization uh, in American, particularly Southern theology. He was working at the time of like, you know, the rise of lots of very famous, well-known preachers, Billy Graham um, and, and that sort of uh, group. group, And Clarence Jordan was always just sort of like never quite got the kind of acclaim. And is it the inconvenience of, of the gospel that he preached is why he was like not so uh, influential perhaps? Um, well, Clarence was... Uh, in the beginning, very popular. When he was in college, he was like president of the BSU at the University of Georgia, and actually the entire Baptist Student Union in Georgia. And he got to know uh, many uh, of the leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so there was a sense in his early years that Clarence was very much an up-and-coming young star, uh, but he eventually became such a radical. He, he challenged the culture so much that um, I, I guess you would have to say that the leadership turned against him. Mm. In, in fact, he was not invited back to his own school, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, in Louisville, Kentucky, until his very last years. Mm. Uh, I, I, I mean, he he was well known in, in many other religious groups, but he was not accepted uh, by Baptists, mm. uh, who, 
who essentially uh, turned against him in in uh, uh, in his early years. I think it was his radical nature, the fact that, um, in in fact, an illustration comes from the book, chapter four, which is um, the first, the earliest book, uh, the the earliest essay that we published, nineteen forty one. Uh, this was almost 15 years before the beginning of the civil rights movement. Right. And Clarence Jordan is calling for uh, equality of the races, 1941. And it's extraordinary that he was able to get that essay published, but it took some doing. Right. And that essay is interesting. That was one of the ones I definitely wanted to talk about. He makes both kind of scientific arguments for why the races are equal, but he mostly relies on his reading of the Bible uh, as uh, the kind of leveling um, way to kind of view racial segregation at the time, which was, like you said, significantly before the civil rights movement formalized. And so it really, really is a person way ahead of his time in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly right. And and, uh, so I think that's one of the reasons that... um, the leadership turned against him. This essay uh, caused personal problems for him with uh, the leadership in Nashville, which was sort of the the center of the Southern Baptist Convention at that mm. time. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I, I'm thinking again about his kind of outsider status, and, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about this Plow series in general. They tend to find people who are kind of, uh, who you know, kind of lost in the margins of their religious traditions, and, and Clarence Jordan definitely fits into that um, that pattern. But I, I was reading an essay um, of yours that you wrote. It was called "Rewriting the Cultural Myths: Clarence Jordan and the Cotton Patch Gospels," um, published. It's an academic article published for the Society of Biblical Literature, um, and you really emphasize the way. Well, you draw out how Jordan emphasized the the prophetic role of Jesus, um, and and the way that his work kind of argues against a splitting, a, a, like a, a separation between the spiritual life and everyday life, and he was much more about sort of activism and practice. Um, and that really does, when you think about evangelicalism in the 20th century, kind of go against sort of salvation-based uh, theologies, right, which are much more kind of widespread and popular and, and long-term influential. And so that that is that kind of the root of his split, is just his, his understanding of the, the meaning of Jesus? Yeah. I, for, for Clarence, Jesus was the rebel. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, um, that's the title of one of his uh, sermons, Jesus the Rebel. And it, it's a glaring insight that he had. Uh, Clarence saw that uh, Southern society, and now we know American society, was bifurcated, uh, that there was this split. And we had bought into Jesus as the the great man who leads us into uh, pie in the sky by and by. But Clarence was about a human Jesus and the humanity of God. And he wanted to emphasize that with uh, a translation of the New Testament that emphasized the humanity of God, 
which he called the Cotton Patch Gospels, and put in a language that people could not ignore. Y'all. <laughs> he uses y'all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and many other colloquialisms <laughs> that uh, he, he attempts to penetrate uh, the walls that people build. But uh, another way that he wanted to uh, uh, help society was through the foundation of Koinonia. With those two things, a translation in the in the language of the common people, and uh, the uh, the farm itself, which was living testimony to that word, uh, th- those were two prophetic efforts by Clarence Jordan. Yeah, the, um, another piece that you collect in here is called, um, I believe it's called No Promised Land Without the Wilderness or something like that. Um, and um, and it really kind of gets at that idea of the promised land isn't the sort of ready-made thing um, for good people to sort of enter into as a reward. It's a thing that's crafted uh, um, through the struggle of the wilderness, right? And so that's a, a good, I think, introduction to Koinonia. And do you want to tell us a little bit? So there's not about the just, not just about the founding of it, but um, the controversies about it. I mean, he was sort of under literal um, ducking bullets, like literally from the KKK. And do you want to sort of tell us the story of Koinonia? Oh, yeah, that, that's an extraordinary story. Uh, in terms of its founding, uh, he and Martin England, his partner in those early days, uh, were looking for a place in either Alabama or Georgia, and eventually they settled there in, in uh, Georgia, uh, just a few miles, eight or ten miles south of America's Georgia, they found this rundown farm uh, that was so bad they had to leave their wives uh, back uh, at another place uh, so they could uh, uh, fix the place up. It was rat infested. The roofs were leaking. The, the houses were run down like the land itself. But from his earliest days, Clarence had this idea that he was not going to compromise. So early on, he was inviting black people over to have lunch and to eat with him, which to us today doesn't sound like much. Mm -hmm. But in those early days, that was really going against the bar. And when the KKK heard that Clarence was sitting down to table with black folk. They came to see him. And so there's some famous stories and recollections that Clarence has about that. But eventually, uh, after some years, it, it turned violent, particularly after the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement and after it was known that Clarence was attempting to uh, help uh, young black students enter uh, the university system of Georgia, and the the Klan uh, burned crosses. They came and shot up his place, blew up uh, parts of the farm and uh, part of his effort. On one occasion, when his daughter was home from the University of Georgia, a bullet came through the walls just inches from her head. Mm. And uh, it, it's extraordinary that nobody at Koinonia 
was hurt by this, but uh, an extremely violent uh, period. Um, and, and the Klan and the city of Americas, uh, who essentially turned against Cornelia, helped to drive uh, uh, Cornelia partners away. So that by the 1960s, early 1960s, Clarence was there virtually alone with one or two other families. Mm. Yeah, um, going back to him helping students enter the University of Georgia, there was, uh, you narrate in your introduction, the system was set up so that um, you had to have like a recommendation from an alumnus or something like that. And so he was, that, that's he, right. he was providing those. Um, and that was, and the governor apparently got involved <laughs> once he found this out. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. T- um, told the cops to check this Jordan fellow out or something. Right. Right. Yeah. These were the George Wallace days. Yeah. And governors could get away with things like that then. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, this is, at the early days, I mean, before even the early days of the civil rights movement. And so this really is the wilderness um, that he's talking about in that, uh, in that essay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about the book itself and, and how you structure it? So there's a, um, a, a nice selection of, um, of works and I want to kind of know about how you put them together, but there's also an excellent, um, co-introduction by a Baptist minister, um, Starletta Thomas, who's the director of the Raceless Gospel Initiative at Good Faith Ministries and host of the Raceless, Raceless Gospel podcast. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the maybe the collaboration there and how you sort of assembled this book? Well, um, the collaboration really was with Sam Hine uh, at Plow, and he was very much involved, very much hands-on. Uh, the original idea was that we would look especially for pieces that were not prominent, that perhaps had not been published before. And my idea uh, especially was that we would uh, look for uh, early pieces uh, as well as uh, like the chapter four that that uh, emphasized uh, Clarence's uh, effort to effort toward integration by 1940 and so on, uh, but also an emphasis on the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Hmm. Uh, there were one or two pieces uh, uh, about which we were really excited and proud, like, uh, oh, let's see which chapter it is. Uh, the uh, things that uh, needed for our peace, chapter twelve. Mm-hmm. This was a this was a sermon that he did at Furman University, just uh, four weeks after the death of Martin Luther King, and this one was really unknown, uh, but it's extraordinarily contemporary uh, with his comments about. Uh, uh, the need for humility with regard to racial attitudes in, in society. Uh, and it was a challenge to fairly well-to-do students uh, to live a life of service uh, and to share what they have with others. Uh, so that's the kind of extraordinary piece. 
as is the last chapter, uh, which is an excerpt from his uh, sermons uh, to to the uh, uh, Northern Baptist group uh, meeting in Seattle in 1969. So the effort was really to go from the beginning of his his uh, work uh, to the end and to look for things that were not so well known, but uh, which could be used as a kind of introduction to his life and thought as you so nicely uh, articulated the structure of uh, this series from Plough. Yeah, and, and yeah, like I said, this entire series does that in really interesting ways. And I know I've learned a lot and been introduced to people that I'd only sort of heard names of, <laughs> but never yeah. really seen anybody kind of take, uh, you know, seriously in a theologically scholarly way. And so, yeah, um, can we dwell on Martin Luther King a little bit before um, going into this? Because you're right, he does notably include... Um, almost a eulogizing sermon that he gives um, about Martin Luther King. Um, there's a really remarkable quote from Martin Luther King on the back of the book where he says, he was a son of the old South, a white Baptist minister doing what we were only talking about. I went to Koinonia to see it for myself and I couldn't wait to leave because I was sure the Klan would show up and kill us both. Um, it's, it's a really remarkable um like commentary on Jordan. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship that they had? It seems like they knew each other somewhat. Was there a very close working relationship there? Well, I, I don't know how close it was, but Clarence did go to Montgomery two or three times. And he stayed in uh, Martin Luther King's home in Montgomery for a week or so when he gave one of the, uh, uh, series there at Dexter Avenue Church in Montgomery. So uh, uh, the extraordinary thing is that uh, here are, are two uh, white, uh, white and one black uh, Georgians who are working for the same cause. I think they must have gotten to know each other pretty well during that first week uh, when they were together. Uh, there is some correspondence between them that is available. Uh, uh, Clarence wrote to Martin about insurance during the boycott in the mid-50s, uh, 1957, I think it was. Uh, Clarence wrote to Martin about uh, where he might get insurance uh, since he had been canceled by his insurance agent there in America's. Um, Clarence writes and speaks about Martin uh, somewhat and didn't always agree with him. Mm. But uh, as this uh, chapter 12 sermon indicates after the death of Martin Luther King, Clarence was sort of rededicated to the proposition that he would stay in the South. Clarence was on the verge of leaving Cornania uh, uh, until the death of Martin Luther King in 1968. He had been offered jobs, prominent jobs, uh, one with Elton Trueblood. Uh, but eventually he turned all of these down and decided to stay 
in in Cornel, at Cornelia, in part I think because he thought the situation was so bad that it was just terribly important for a white Southerner to continue uh, the work like uh, that of Cornelia. Yeah, and in that collaboration, the fact that he's sort of doing this out of his own kind of independent understanding of of his religion and yeah it when literally like no one else in his context is right so no one like he's sort of a rare he's like a unicorn um amongst the you know white southern um baptists at the time especially and so it, it seems to me that he has it, it's an entirely fitting time in our nation's history to revisit clarence jordan he, it seems to me that his example and his ideas are more resonant now than they ever could have been in his time. But even really, even b- between his time and our time, uh, like I feel like right now, like the the world has sort of come around in some ways to his um, his ideas. Do you want to talk a little bit about the lasting impact of his uh, or his contemporary influence? Uh, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, I remember what you said early on that there's a certain extent to which uh, Clarence was a man ahead of his time, but uh, time is caught up Mm. with his ideas. And that struck me perhaps most of all when I was reading that very nice and listening to that very nice sermon that he gave at Furman University, Uh, particularly uh, with the context of our our own uh, racial situation, here in the country that we've struggled with. Um, And the second paragraph, which is on page 91, this is a wonderful quote. These people needed a sense of national and racial humility. Mm. Wow. Uh, Talk about timely. Right. (laughs) Uh, I mean, that just sears the soul. You know, I mean, he's, he's absolutely right, right. Uh, about that. Uh, if something like that could capture the hearts and minds of our country, or even our churches, yeah, if only in our churches, what a change uh, that could bring. Unfortunately, uh, we have learned in recent years that too many churches have participated in uh, right wing uh, radical ideas that approach, uh, uh, if not in fact endorse racism. Yeah. And, excuse me. No, no. Um, I, I was just going to follow that up because he's, he's pointing that kind of, the version of that out in, during his time. He, there's all sorts of little puns. I, I wanted to talk about his style. It's a very folksy style, and um, and he has a very interesting way of connecting ancient, you know, Judea to <laughs> to contemporary the contemporary South, and it's a really interesting way of doing it. And one of the ways he does it is with little puns. And, and so when he talked about um, Jesus recruiting publicans he sort of makes a joke about now i would never recruit a republican excuse me publican right and so he makes a sort of joke about the politics <laughs> yeah. of his time and there's another joke in some other essay about jesus offending the 
the House Committee on on Roman Affairs or something along those lines. Yeah. So he's clearly yeah. like politically engaged um, with the the political scene of his time and seeing the way in which those politics are negatively influencing the religious practice of uh, of Christianity during his time. And that I mean, it sounds so familiar to what we're talking about now with you know, um, Christian nationalism is sort of the, the buzzword on Twitter right now. And, and, uh, and it's like, you can imagine it's, it's, it is as if, um, we've all become on some level Clarence Jordan, uh, and, in our ideas. Yes. And he, he used that humor to defuse situations and, and, um, to avoid violence. Um, there, there's this uh, famous story about when the the clan first came to see him, and uh, the clan threatened him in such a way, like, um, uh, you know, if you don't stop doing this, if you if you eat with uh, black people again before the sun sets, we'll be back, and implying we'll be doing things. And Clarence immediately grabbed the guy's hand. And, and shook his hand, and he said something like, uh, I want you to know that I'm a graduate of Southern Baptist Seminary, and I've heard about people who could make the sun stand still, but I've never met one. I'm so glad to meet you. And so he's shaking the hand of the guy who's, who's threatening to kill him, and he's using humor to defuse that yeah. He, he was uh, a man of uh, great humor, and um, he used that in his communication, to be sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I want to—I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I want to start, you know, moving. So I want to mo- start moving towards the end here. But the kind of middle chunk of this book is a series of talks that he gave at was it Goshen University, uh, uh-huh. Goshen College in Indiana in 1965, and right. you collected them obviously purposefully for some reason, and I, I just think it's a really interesting way because that. 1965, you're talking about sort of the middle of the civil rights movement at this point, the climax almost actually of it. And, um, and so can you talk about the, um, what he's trying to accomplish with these talks for college students in Indiana? Well, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that Clarence, since his early days, had a great affection for college students. In fact, this is the way he got started, uh, was in a kind of college ministry. Mm. And when he was most popular with the Baptists, he was going all over the country. Uh, he rode a motorcycle out to from, from Georgia to Waco, Texas, to Baylor University. Uh, and w- one of the amazing things about uh, the, uh, the very nice, collection of material at the University of Georgia on Clarence is the letters that came back thanking him for his work with the colleges. Mm. So what I would say is at Goshen, this is a long-term interest and is really an extension of his first love. Mm. And by the 1960s, Clarence was looking for a way to extend his ministry. His 
his idea of cornea by the mid-60s was really being challenged. It's only at the end of the 60s when he revitalizes that and extends it to bring in things like Habitat for Humanity, which is an even more radical vision than his first vision. But by the mid-60s, he's, he's going around speaking a great deal uh, at schools like uh, Goshen. And uh, those folks uh, in, indeed kept uh, the sermons. And in fact, they were able to send us uh, hand, not handwritten, but typewritten copies of uh, uh, some of the sermons that he gave there. But uh, though that Goshen series really uh, present the gospel uh, in a very human form, uh, the radical Jesus, uh, love your enemies, uh, that kind of thing, Jesus and possessions. Uh, those are very strong sermons and still have quite an appeal, uh, especially uh, if you're able to listen to these sermons. Mm. He, he communicates with every aspect of his being. And uh, if you're sensitive to the gospel traditions, it's hard not to be moved by his presentation uh, of those sermons. And it's interesting to me when you read those, the way, so his concept of Jesus is, is this radical prophet, right? And so he right. emphasizes you have heard it said this, but I'm telling you that, right? So he's like tr transforming, um, it, you know, inherited beliefs about theology in Jesus's ministry. Jesus is doing that. Um, and so he's trying to do that as well, I think, in a lot of these. And so when I read the essay Metamorphosis, for example, um, it, it's an interesting, like, uh, almost uh, explanation of his method, the way he's sort of talking about um you, you know, he uses the biological metaphor of a, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, but there's something about the way the gospel message transforms in given circumstances, uh, and, and it, it requires a different kind of um, being, basically. Uh, and so yeah. the the idea of uh, metamorphosis, uh, it, you could see him sort of replicating his understanding of Jesus and Jesus's prophetic ministry in an essay like that. And in fact, all of those essays, that's the one that sort of explains the method. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the central idea is that Jesus came to bring about a new order yeah. to change things. Uh, on the one hand, that's the central message of Jesus, but at the same time, the exact reason that society and leadership within his own convention turned against him. Clarence wanted to turn things upside down. Yeah. And the, the last one, I just wanted to talk to you about this because I found it so fascinating. So this is a little selfish <laughs> for, of me as an interviewer. But the the essay about the man from Gadara, I thought it was just really kind of fascinating because, you know, growing up and 
vaguely in, in, in evangelical circles, that's always been sort of a demon possession story primarily, right? Yeah. And he doesn't like completely eliminate that, but he has a wild reading <laughs> of that whole scenario um, down to where like he talks about the pigs as some sort of economic uh, like activity. He talks about people having pigs as kind of the equivalent of liberal Christians <laughs> of his day. And he's like completely like, shifting the emphasis from like the spiritual realm of demon possession to this like economic and cultural critique of, you know, of Palestine at the time and us today at the same time. I thought it was just a fascinating essay. I just would love your thoughts on it. Well, yeah, uh, many readers, in fact, point to that particular essay or sermon as one that is difficult for them. Uh, (laughs) Now, I I think probably this is an illustration of his uh, rather eclectic and eccentric uh, vision. Clarence was really open um, to many readings and, and and in essence, if you put several of these together, uh, this is where he's beginning to equate the man from Gadara with the prodigal son. Mm. And um, but at the same time, I guess you would say, radical Jesus, he's out there uh, with the outcast. Jesus is with the legion Mm -hmm. and he's still wanting to bring about radical change Um, sort of the heart of that essay despite some of its uh, eccentric uh, interpretations is uh, the the radical call to the disciple to be present with the other outcast yeah, and and to look for ways to uh, help transform them and to bring them back into the fold, uh, and that's a part of why he's able to equate uh, this young man with the the prodigal son. Yeah, it's really, and maybe it speaks to me. I'm an English professor, and so I don't really mind if someone subverts authorial intent <laughs> and does a creative <laughs> reading of, uh, of, 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 of the text. Yeah. Uh, and so I just, I found it just like really just fascinating and thought provoking. And, uh, and I think, yeah, you're right. It, he, he has this sort of, um, way of trying to kind of, do something creative with this with the gospel stories right and yeah. and, and uh, as part of his forging of some new um, utopia sort of in, in 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 this life and so no I, I found that to be a particularly fascinating essay and uh, I really enjoyed it um, well um, I would like to wrap things up but is there any other anything else you would like to sort of add to our discussion here that you haven't gotten to say I think um in a kind of summary statement, uh, I would just add that uh, in addition to the timely nature that we've talked about here of his sermons, uh, and to which maybe, I mean, if we had more time, we could talk about violence. Mm. Uh, Clarence was very much uh, about peace and 
an effort to subvert violence. But uh, one of the reasons that Clarence Jordan should uh, should uh, claim our attention today is that, uh, as the folks at Plow have rightly seen, he was a gifted man, an extraordinarily individual who lived a life of vision, courage, and integrity, uh, the like of which uh, we seldom see. And uh, so I think he was an extraordinary fellow who was, as many of his contemporaries would say, was the closest thing to an embodiment of the gospel that they had ever seen. And particularly relevant today, and it's kind of, there's a sense of justice that his ideas have uh, finally been acknowledged, uh, I think, widely by most of us now who are paying attention to things. And so, um, Dr. Frederick Downing, I thank you so much for your time. Thank you for writing this book. Um, It was really, really interesting. I uh, learned a lot. I was inspired by it. And thank you to Plow for um, setting this conversation up and for publishing the book in the first place. Um, The book is called The Inconvenient Gospel, A Southern Prophet Tackles War. War, Wealth, Race, and Religion um, by Clarence Jordan, and it is edited by Frederick L. Downing, and you can get this anywhere you buy books, basically, and uh, I'm very happy to uh, recommend it to everybody out there. So for Frederick Downing, my name is Danny Anderson. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Oh, no, no, no.